K-Town is a misnomer. It's called K-Town, but it's all Latinos. Yeah, um, so that's called K-Town. I see a lot of little short, dark people. Yeah, here. Puro, Puro Oaxacan. Puro Oaxacan Koreans. <laughs> K-Town is okay. I got snacks for K-Town is okay. It's like 60% of this show. Well, I mean, why do we get together if it's not to drink stuff? So I went to HK Market and I got kimbap. I got banana milk. And I got, um, in in English it says rice puffed pop snack. It's Pontegi, but they say it also in Korean, Papsinek. Anyway, um, so I'm at the cash register, and I'm just kind of like thinking about our podcast and what we're going to be talking about, so I'm sort of spacing out. And then the guy who was, you know, packing everything up was like, would you like some chapsticks? <laughs> I was like, chapsticks for my lips? And he's like, yeah, like chapsticks to put on my lips? And he's like, no, no, no chopsticks i was like oh. oh for my kimbap yes 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 and he's like it's chokarak in korean right and i was like yes yes except it's chokarak it's a softer g but you know this is where all of our kind of formed ways of making sound kind of gives us all specificity right so it's easier for it was easier for him to say the hard like ch rather than like the j you know but anyway that was really funny and so i got these chopsticks Oh, they look so sturdy. Yes, yes. Perfect for this kimbap. And again, this banana milk. I'm taking a bit of a chance, but making some assumptions about maybe your cultural culinary heritage, I thought this might translate okay for you. There's some folks who might think this is really bizarre, but I, I, I thought at least culturally it would translate. I don't know about your personal palate of like sweetness and um, uh, non-natural fruit flavors. But, you know, we can do a whole collage of the various snacks that these cultures have come up with mm-hmm. over the last 150 plus mm-hmm. years or so. Mm-hmm. We should totally just have Korean snacks meeting Mexican or Oaxacan snacks. For sure. And they should just get to hang out and get to know each other a little bit. Like For us. sure. Yeah. Because there's um, this isn't as like readily celebrated you know, in this more sanitized day and age. But Koreans also, you know, have a tradition of eating insects. So, Oh, well, it's it's great because I feel as though if there was a time for snacks to meet other snacks, that time is now. Yes. You know? Mm-hmm. That time is now, and the place is a place like Los Angeles. Yeah. I really don't see why yeah. not. I mean, and also this banana milk, it's basically like liquado, you know, so. Right, with the artificial flavors. <laughs> <laughs> liquado, but with artificial bananas <laughs> That's instead right. of an That's actual right. banana from a tree, yes. which you can easily yes. find, but never mind I that I mean, part. it's the same, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the I love the colors of our snack this morning, and honestly... It's a mini feast. Yeah, I didn't mean for it to be so elaborate, but, you know, um, HK Market is like one of the markets from my childhood, and so I just got this flood of nostalgia, and there's all this food out. So actually, this feast is like um, 
a controlled sort of edited amalgamation. I, I, I could have brought like 10 more things, but I didn't. I love that. Mm. Just incredible. Yep. <laughs> Honestly, the crunchy sound is one of my favorite sounds in the universe. Yeah. I especially love crunching leaves. Oh. I went it on. Oh, not with your mouth. <laughs> I thought. No. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a cultural thing I don't know about. <laughs> no, I do not pick up leaves <laughs> that I find on the streets of Los Angeles and start eating them. <laughs> I only mean I love stepping on them. I understand now completely. I'm on the same page. But with respect to that, I do love the sound of crunchiness in my mouth. When I'm like having a crunchy snack, mm-hmm. it's just one of the most iconic human achievements. I don't know of too many other animals out there that do a whole lot of crunching and that make it sound as neat. I'm sure I, they're out there. Yeah, I bet animals enjoy the sound of crunch. It's satisfying, you know. But um, yes. Yeah, so the particular, I I didn't know this particular love of uh, you know, your love of these crunching sounds. Mm. And it's funny because during our last meetup, I thought maybe I can go to the market myself. You beat me to it somewhat, but I'll be at the market and I'll be seeing you with snacks from there soon. Yeah, so many markets yeah. in K-Town oh, and not just Korean ones. That's exactly it. Market yeah. galore in mm-hmm. K-Town. So shout out to HK Market this morning for the lovely kimbap and the rice puffs. Mm-hmm. And thank you for making the track out there and lugging all this on a crazy Friday slash street sweeping morning. <laughs> so speaking of taking a moment to like be grateful about things, um, I feel like you maybe have some interesting news to share. You gave me a little bit of insight before we started recording. Yes. Yes, I did. I do have to say that this AM, I was very happy to see a light but nonetheless significant shout out from none other than apple podcasts for my podcast jt the la storyteller podcast on behalf of latinx heritage month which actually starts today september 15th it was really cool to see my podcast along with the podcast of a few other storytellers out there especially locally shouted out by none other than the overlords at Apple, which someone else mentioned. I didn't come across the shout out myself. Mm. Somebody else did. Yeah. And I thought then, okay, cool. Like, it is great to see JT the LA Storyteller as a format that I am a part of go and make some waves because that's the purpose of our work. Yes. Anyhow. And it's cool to like take a step back and see that other people are recognizing that too Mm -hmm. i mean you know the affirmation is always great we need encouragements along the way and you know you really deserve it jimmy because it's been like day in and day out you know yearly for four years just so many quality pod you know like episodes and stuff so i think this encouragement is or this affirmation is well deserved but not only that this increases you know the the breadth of your audience that you can engage in dialogue with and i know that is your heart and your passion so congratulations thank you nuna i really do appreciate that and absolutely like 
for all of those out there who are looking to start their own pod, who are looking to get into these convos and these dialogues with their community because it feels like you can capture them in ways that maybe haven't quite yet been seen before. Definitely trust in that instinct. Definitely go after the big fish as long as it takes. Don't worry about the time. Worry about the quality. Worry about the intentionality. Worry about how you're going to impress yourself on this path. And bon voyage. I am all for mm-hmm. it. And the same will be true for K-Town is okay. I'm just going to say that right now for the record and then step out. Ooh. Ooh, 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 ooh. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so very cool. So proud of you, Tung Zeng. Thank you so much, Nuna. Bow, bow, bow. Oh, we actually have a real one for that. Oh. Now. Okay, not this one. <laughs> Uno momento. Okay. What did you do with the bell, 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 bell? <laughs> that is perfect. No, we're going to end it there. <laughs> that, you're right. Amazing. Okay. So what are we going to talk about today? So during our last convo, you did such a wonderful job of getting me to think about this other time in my life through the city of Los Angeles mm. and how that's informed my perspective and the work that I do and the issues that I'm passionate about. And so I really thought that honing in a little bit on family life mm. was a great way for us to tell our listeners a little more about ourselves and in turn tell them a little more about this city. So now that we've spoken a little bit about me and even though as noted on the podcast episode we ended slightly abruptly i think we'll definitely be back to discussions of my mom and i that's for sure i got a lot to say as i'm sure she does maybe one day we can even bring her on oh i would love that that'd be a huge achievement for my podcasting career mm-hmm. but i thought why don't we talk a little bit about my nuna's family on the k-town side I really do think that listeners would be thrilled to hear about your specific connection to this place. We know that you care about Koreatown. We know that your parents have led you through that environment in so many different ways and that now you're also like interacting or engaging with K-Town on your Mm -hmm. own terms and, and you're doing these special case studies. But... Before all that, I want to know a little bit about when you first got here and when your parents decided that, hey, this entrepreneurialism, this self-startership, we're going to do some of that too and we're going to do it in K-Town as well. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. You you mentioned to me before that your parents had a shop on, I believe it was 7th Street. Mm, uh, very close, 8th Street. On 8th Street. Mm -hmm. Love that. And so I want to ask you a little bit about that shop and when it was founded and how old you were. Tell me more and we'll take it from there. Yeah. Okay. So, well, let me go back to the, um, what you said earlier about like, you know, that my parents landed in LA in K-Town and they're like, oh, let's try this entrepreneur thing. I think, I mean, you know, what I've realized 
in doing my other research, you know, about um, immigration and acculturation, stories um, have similar beats if you come at a certain time and you're in a certain people group, but also like they're so unique, right? And so um, this could resonate with some folks, could not, you know, they may have different experiences or their parents may have had. But I think my my dad in particular just kind of already knew. I mean, when you decide that you're going to to migrate to a whole different land that you're unfamiliar with, I think my dad had the assumption that I mean he 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 went with like an entrepreneurial spirit already, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's not um you know uh, dissimilar to pretty much anyone who migrates somebody somewhere new, right? So, so, so they already had that kind of idea that they had to like do things on their own, that they had to build things. Um, so yeah, this shop that they had on 8th Street, that wasn't the first thing that they did. Um, my dad got into um, the, the sewing industry and that's because of um, other family members that were established here in LA. They were already doing that work. And my dad also um, had factory work uh, experience in Korea, kind of on a management level. And so he, he imagined that that would be sort of a, you know, an easy place to, to kind of slip into. So, you know, he was in the kind of sewing industry for a while in downtown. And then um, my mom has a pharmacy background. And they've always just kind of been interested in like health and homeopathy and stuff like that. So um, I think the story is that they were going to um, open up like a um, like vitamins and kind of health um, supplement type shop. And then I think... You know, just it's incredible, like these immigrant communities have such an incredible like network of information. Some of it, you know, maybe not accurate, (laughs) but a lot of it pretty dependable. And so as they were doing their research, they discovered that, you know, there's just with California and with like any consumable like things, there's just so many rules and policies and, you know, like protocols and all of those things. And so they were kind of convinced out of doing that. And then, um just one conversation led to another and suddenly they ended up having a medical supply store which is like so outside of um the wheelhouse of the kim family you know you could say well hospital stuff is adjacent to like health and my mom was in you know pharmaceuticals but like you know she she prepared and concocted medication you know she consulted people on like those on that aspect of health like so she didn't know anything about hospital beds and ankle braces and my dad didn't know anything about that either so and speaking of policies and rules and regulations there is so much so much around um, medical stuff so my parents not being fully proficient in English and being in a new sector of the marketplace, how are they to do this? And what year is it to be certain? What What's the time frame here? Um, this was, um, I would say, like 16, 17 years ago. So you do the math for me. <laughs> 20, 23 minus 17 years. Okay. Yeah. So how are they to get the support that they need who in their network hmm you know we're starting up this shop and it's going to cost quite a bit of money and especially as we get going 
I think we'll probably have to tap into some hyper-local resources. Hyper-local, very locally sourced, farm to, farm to table, <laughs> Helen Kim. <laughs> Our daughter, <laughs> Helen H. Kim. You're up. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I, you know, I can't remember how the conversation went, but basically my parents, you know, um, I'm sure if I was like, no, I'm not going to do this, they wouldn't have been able to force me, you know. Um, but basically it was like, okay, so you're, you're going to do this. And in fact, we're going to put this in your name, you know, because my, my parents are, um, it's a other thing, but my parents are always thinking about death and preparing for death. So they're like, we might as well have the business in your name so that if something happens to us, then you don't have to worry. It's in your name. So <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I would say, yeah, there is the angle for death. I also think like the equivalency to that is inheritance. So they're thinking, yeah, sure, about their own death, but they're also thinking about like, what does the next generation get? Oh, yeah. I mean, right. they think about... I'm sure they have more existential, spiritual thoughts about death as well. But um, the reason for them talking about death so much, you know, around their kids is because it's about preparing us, you know, setting us up. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so because of that, my you know, my dad, like I said, uh, set up the business under my name. So by name, I was like the president and the founder of the company. Wow. And yeah. Goodness. And, you know, just to remind or to let everybody know, I have a fine art background um, in terms of like commerce, um, you know, and kind of when the apocalypse happens, what are the skills that we need? Um, fine art is not one of them. So um, I, I had like even less experience in this um, anywhere near this sector. But um, suddenly I was going to like uh, mastectomy, you know, like certification courses and like, you know, um, ankle braces, back braces, you know, like learning about those, learning about diabetic shoes and getting certified to be a, di or, or, you know, diabetic shoe fitter, um, you know, learning about all the Medicare um, policies about documentation for, um, you know, hospital beds and uh, electric wheelchairs and, um, you know, what doctor's notes look like, what the diagnostic codes are, you know, um, learning software that um, pulls all these medical codes into paperwork. And um, if we get denied payment from Medicare, then like appealing and, you know, uh, yeah, I just was constantly calling Medicare all the time. And so suddenly I went from just, um, you know, this whole other area of interest to then diving into this medical supply store with my parents. Right, you were flying the plane as you build it. Yeah, I think that's so true because, you know, I don't think my parents really understood the, the breadth and depth of what they were getting into, the complications of, um, you know, not having your payment mostly from your clientele because our parents, mm -hmm. our customer base was mostly uh, Spanish-speaking, you know, um, Folks on like folks, maybe you know, WIC or some kind of benefits. Yeah, yeah. Some um, kind of state Latino, Latina. Um, you know, elder elderly folks mostly. Korean folks. Be, those were basically the two, you know, um, demographics that we were pretty much 
providing for. Um, and most people were Medi-Medi, meaning Medicare, Medi-Cal. Right. So, um, yeah. Uh, we hardly got any money from the customers. You know, we had to... Right, they have from vouchers the of some sort that they provide you with. Um, the they have their Medicare cards and their Medi-Cal cards, you know, and um, we, they, everyone has like their account numbers and stuff, so we process it through that. Um, and there's just all kinds of complications with with all of that. Um, and there's, you know, to to give anybody anything, you know, diapers, hospital beds. There's all of these like restri- like requirements, you know, that have to be met, and sometimes they don't meet them, or sometimes the doctors don't provide the the right amount of documentation, and they don't get back to you. So then you kind of like, even if somebody's like, I really need this hospital chair or hospital bed. Oh, I'm so sorry, but we can't provide it. You know, it, yeah, it was just like a pretty wow. complicated business. Really, because you're in Los Angeles and you mentioned that this shop was on 8th Street mm-hmm. and in passing through the area with you previously, I've noted that it's like at just it's just about past Hoover. Yeah, so it it was um we served, you know, a lot of communities, um, like I would say Westlake, Koreatown, and also, you know, people live far out, so we've like certainly driven down to like other neighborhoods and stuff, um, to deliver our items. But so we were just outside of Koreatown. Um, but you know, you kinda also have to have like a network with different hospitals and doctors' offices and they were very much in like the Westlake and Koreatown areas. Yeah, I mean that tells you about the galactic system of a neighborhood mm-hmm. because there are satellites mm-hmm. sometimes where they may not necessarily be located in the main system or in the nucleus, but they're just around the way and they form a part of the neighborhood. They form a part of the neighborhood even though they might not be right within the boundaries that are Mm -hmm. generally associated with that neighborhood. Yeah. But as you said, what I think is also fascinating here is that you all were diving into this business, which is something that you had to pick up at the very moment that your parents make the request I'm sure that was a challenge on your part or I want to know a little bit actually about how it felt when your parents noted this to you. Did it feel for you like they had a plan or a specific vision that was going to flesh out at some point or did you feel like you were going to support them for a little while before maybe things picked up and you didn't have to do as much of the day-to-day work? How did it come off to you when this was noted? And how is it that you came to the decision to roll up your sleeves and go for it with them? Um, I think there's c- several components um, that con- uh, contribute to this. But I think being um, a daughter, you know, as opposed to maybe a son. And these are generalizations and I'm sure, you know. There are other people who would disagree from their experiences. But, you know, being that I was um, a girl, that um, I was the firstborn, um, that we were immigrant family, and I just had experiences growing up of just seeing how vulnerable my parents were out in the world, 
you know, um, how they were othered in like um, small and big ways and just wanting to be protective and be there for them. Like those kinds of components. And also like in Korean culture, um, at least the way it was lived out in our family, like filial piety, right? Like utter respect and loyalty to your parents. That's just like a huge part of Korean culture for me. So all of those components meant that there was no deciding I'm going to do this or not do this. Even if I wasn't cool with the idea, you know, my parents saying this is what we're going to do. I mean, in my mind, there wasn't any other choice. I was going to do it. And I, I, I did not feel great about it because I did not want to get into the medical supply business. I, know, I knew nothing about that. I had no interest in that. And I also didn't have a huge interest in being in a tiny office in the back of a store with my parents for like 10 hours a day. Right. As if that hasn't <laughs> Imagine <happened> that. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> as if you haven't spent the last 20 plus years and then some with your parents mm-hmm. in a similar enough way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there are, my dad speaks some Spanish because of, you know, his work in the garment district. Um, you know, I took Spanish in, um, junior high and high school. I'm ashamed of actually the lack of Spanish I speak for the amount of like education I got. I should have kept it up, but I didn't. But anyway, so I was like shy about my Spanish, but I was also like pressed by my parents to speak Spanish to the folks who came in. And I just like everything that they wanted me to do, it was just made me feel uncomfortable. Right. Wow. I mean, and the fact that you can also just abide by their wishes and just go for it all in, even though you know what you feel, even though you know that this is not what you would hope to do, Mm -hmm. the fact that you nevertheless honor your parents in this way, it says a lot, I think, about the way families make businesses not just in K-Town, but throughout Los Angeles, throughout mm-hmm. the world. And it's fascinating to know that you were going to have to learn a whole lot about insurance and about the process between the public sector and these clientele and this clientele. And then to know that there's also a language barrier up to a significant point. And then to know that you're a medical supply store. So the people who are coming to you are already people in great need. They already have some serious or pronounced issues that they've likely been dealing with for days on end, if not decades. And there you all are kind of like getting into it with them. Yeah. And I wonder then what kind of storytelling you had to do after all when it came to talking with these clients and sometimes having to say no, sometimes having to ask them to elaborate or say more or sometimes having to let them know that their payment didn't go through. Yeah. How did that play out for y'all? I, you know, I mean, it was just a constant negotiation. I think um, just maybe that's a a general human condition. You're just making negotiations all day. But um, in a very... um, hyper kind of top level way where you're where you know that these negotiations are happening you're partaking in them you know with with clients and with vendors and things like that all the time so because of the clientele that we were serving um you know the spanish speaking the korean speaking and and of that generation too right because we're talking about um senior adults 
they both had this come from a culture of like the marketplace, you know, it's more about you go to the open market and you're um, sort of negotiating yeah, even prices bargain and out. bargains and stuff. So there's a lot of that style of, of serving the clientele. So, um, and also just kind of like um, eating it, you know, um, if, <laughs> you know, we've had many times where we provide an, a, a product to somebody and, you know, actually the payment from the government sometimes takes a really long time. So they've been using the hospital bed for like months and finally you get paid like week, uh, month six. At that point, you can ask them to return it, but they've already been using it, you know, yeah. it's so um, we, we just kind of like ate it a lot of times. Or we would say, um, okay, well, we'll throw in this and we'll, you know, um, next time when you get, uh, when you need this, you know, maybe we'll, so we had to do a lot of sort of like um, negotiations. I I keep saying that word, but I I think that's the most accurate. Yeah. And so just to be certain for our minds, this was a medical supply store and not necessarily a pharmacy. So people didn't go there to pick up medication no no yeah and and also like you know um we wanted to do things by the book in that way my parents are pretty american like they sort of like everything to be above the above board but then so it's like this weird tension between like doing things by the book appropriately feeling like we're doing our work with integrity um regardless of how we feel about like government and policies and official entities still like wanting to you know keep our heads held up high but also knowing that there's this other um way of doing commerce that our clientele is used to you know and so it's just that like liminal space that we were constantly in you know and and you do get into a certain rhythm in that yeah and i think a little bit about what the city planning perspective could do there in an ideal case so this is to say I wonder if at any point, because you had to go through all these different barriers or these paths to a certification so that you could sell these items in the first place, I'm wondering if at any point there was some kind of intermediary or someone from the public planning side or someone from the government, basically, if not the city planning department, who came out and said, here's how you can set this up here are a few potential paths, and if you have any questions, here's my card. Was there anyone that was sent out, or was it strictly like, okay, you want to do this? Here are the permits that you're going to need to have approved, and from there on, good luck. Yeah, I mean, in terms of city planning, no. There wasn't anyone from that sector that came to regulate us or support us. I mean, you know, we had to do the regular usual things like have our business license and you know pay our our taxes and all of those kinds of things um and i think really uh in that in the medical sector in particular i mean and this is i think um repeated in other sectors uh, that the government has a finger in as well but really the government doesn't want to be responsible they just want to regulate right and make sure that um you're doing things appropriately. Um, but in terms like, yeah, they, but they, they don't want to actually be the ones, um, on, on foot, like 
going to all the different stores and looking at everything. So they, they sort of contract that out to these different entities, you know, that are private businesses. So the government didn't even, there's, you know, the government does have a website that says, you know, these are all the things that you need, but it's really cumbersome. And so this is where you then go find an organization that you have to pay like a due. And then they tell you what all the things are. And then they're the ones that say like, go take this class. You need that certification or whatever. So the government isn't necessarily like coming up to us and saying you need certification to fit, you know, diabetic patients with shoes. Um, but if they find out that you were providing diabetic shoes without a certification, then they'll ding you. Well, that's what I'm somewhat curious about here, too, as in I'm wondering if there was ever an inspector or a, mm-hmm. a couple of inspectors who were sent out and when, because I know that with mom and I, that at some point became an issue. Or one day you're selling a product and from out of the blue, these people with some badges mm-hmm. come up to your shop and let you know that actually you're not supposed to be doing that. I'm yeah. curious a little bit about how y'all fared with this. Um, you know, it's been a while since my parents retired from that store. So some of the specifics are, and I was very happy to forget all the details of, um, you know, running a medical supply store. <laughs> but I do remember we did have audits every few years. Um, so it's funny looking at the business in the context of being the child of immigrants, because, um, you would get a heads up that like an audit's coming up, you know, they would say, this is the date or these are, this is like the time frame in which somebody will just pop in. Right. And then it's like a literal audit. Like they come into your store, they look at the retail section. They, you know, they have all these like rules about how everything should be laid out that like the exits are clear and, you know, like, people of different weights and whatever can get through the, like all of those things. So they, they look at all of that and then they go into the filing system. They look at all the rand like they just pick random files of your patients to see what the documentation is like, make sure everything's legit. And it takes several hours. And so you were, and so you were present at one point during one of these audits. Oh, I'm always present. No, I'm always present. There's no way I would let my parents just be there for the audit. Like they could manage, but just the emotional panic of like, are we understanding everything this person is saying? So actually, this this makes very clear something for me. This was your parents, but also your medical supply story. Legally speaking, it was your store. Yes, yes. But I, I never was thinking, oh, I need to be there because it's my store. It's because my parents, <laughs> you know, need me to be there. So I was never not there when, like, official things like that were happening, you know. And um, the reason I say it's, uh, like, such an interesting thing to look at from the perspective of a child of immigrants, and I, everything I said is, is interesting from that perspective, but what I'm thinking about is, so before these um, audits happened, I mean, it was just all hands on deck. Like my parents and I, we would just pour over all of the files, all of our paperwork, all of our binders, make sure everything is like good and spruce everything up. So it just looks like, you know, great. Right. And, um, And it would just be like a giant project, right? And it is so analogous to when I was a kid, right? And um, I was still learning English. I was still figuring out what it meant to be a student in America. Like, it was like a group project, you know, especially if it was like reading comprehension, my parents would stay up with me like until midnight and we'd be like looking at some stupid story about like some girl in the countryside. And we're like, 
um, what are the themes and motifs of the story? And my parents would just like look through and go, what? you know, we would have our Korean English to Korean dictionary yeah. and like we would read through everything together and then we would get the answers written out together. You know, so <laughs> sometimes my homework was like a group effort with my parents and we're like sweating until midnight right and so <laughs> then fast forward several decades and then that's kind of what these audits were like at the store you know right now it's your turn to help them weather the storm yeah but it's like the same energy like we're pouring over these things together to make sure that our homework is good yeah. you know so when the teacher comes the teacher says okay um you're not going to get fined <laughs> yeah, of course of course now what's also Really interesting is that when you mention that this shop is from about 15 or 16 years ago, I realized this was just before the onset of the Great Recession. Mm. So you all were heading into this business just before a whole lot mm. was going to shift for the American economic system at that moment. Yeah, so so that's then like the big argument for working in a sector where you kind of have a contract with the government because that's meant to be study, right? Um, and, you know, I think my parents would, parents would say, as difficult as it was, we had no idea how hard it was going to get. And actually, the person who s sold us, like, this pre-existing business, we were kind of scammed, you know? So I, I won't get into that because that's, like, a whole other story. So, you know, it never, like, felt great from the beginning, and it wasn't like the bill of goods that we were sold. It wasn't quite what we imagined. But yes, there was that consistency of the government. They started now like slashing prices, right? And so the... Um, slashing prices as in... Like what, what the... Um, gosh, you know, I don't even remember the proper terminology. The... Um, not refund. The re... The rebate or... No. Um when you when you get money back for like the like when you get when somebody pays you back yes thank you reimbursement. reimbursement yeah the reimbursement prices were just always getting cut down you know so do you mean that the government was sending out like price points yeah the government has like a price point for what they will pay so um it's not by like so you you know like with any any other like aspects of the market there's like high end low end right so you can buy a really expensive um yeah walking like a, walker like a bed has to be pretty expensive yeah so you could have like super low end you know um janky kind of hospital bed or you can get like super high end um if they're in the same category as type of bed the government's going to pay the same price regardless and then from that base price, um, they started cutting down on how much they were going to pay for certain things. And so then, like, whatever we had left over between the, um, you know, the price that we purchase from the manufacturer to what we get from the government. And also sometimes, you know, um, the client is responsible for a cer certain percentage. So, sure. like, Medicare doesn't pay for the whole thing. But the practice at our store... Because the rest of it was just too complicated. This is like the negotiation I'm talking about. Then we just sort of like ate it. So we were even just getting 80% of what the government was paying. So actually what you're saying too is that the government started buckling down. It started paying less to some extent for certain items. It oh, started yeah. reimbursing less for yeah, certain yeah. items. So you did still have consistency in terms mm -hmm. of the amount of people who needed your services. Mm -hmm. But what was changing at that moment after 
or through the onset of the Great Recession was how much you all would be getting back from the government. Right. So you felt cuts too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So they, they would sort of change requirements about like who was eligible for certain kinds of products wow. and then also like how much you were going to get paid. And so we felt that, but also, you know, we felt like <laughs> hashtag blessed that we did have this consistency, you know, that sure. we wouldn't have had if we were just, you know, a full on retail store. Wow. You know, it reminds me of a bill my mom showed me recently from LADWP which noted that there were these certain these certain qualifications that allowed customers such as herself to receive a bit of a discount on her services. Mm. That has just come to an end, and LADWP has sent out letters all over the city saying there have been changes, the side of legislation and governance Therefore, we're no longer able to offer these discounts and your bill is likely to go up. And so it's interesting that systems such as these remain in place. That is that there's not total certainty or a total guarantee for any service after all when it's in relation to the government provide and and even just the private sector nothing can be absolutely certain yeah. in the private sector either and you have an interesting path in the middle there where you have a private medical supply store but it is also in partnership mm-hmm. with these items that the government is going to be subsidizing up to a point until they're mm-hmm. reducing the amount of subsidies they can provide yeah yeah. So as you're talking, I was also trying to, because it is a retail store, you can buy these things, you know, with cash. So I'm like thinking through, did we have any sort of like cash products that kind of helped us out? And I don't think we really had too many things like that. I think my parents tried and, you know, I, I think we had the same challenges that any sort of mom and pop store has in this internet internet age, you know? Yeah, of um, course. So I don't know that cash um, paying customers were really something we could rely on at all. And there couldn't be too many cash paying customers in that area either because exactly. I mean, honestly, like Westlake and MacArthur park are some of the densest areas in LA County. And there's certainly some of the most under resourced. And so you were Mm kind of smack dab in the middle of this environment with critical needs for especially seniors Mm -hmm. especially people in this later part of their lives so yeah yeah so you know we also saw like the emotional aspect of that because you know um yeah i think globally just people don't know how to care for senior adults Mm. people have conflicting Mm. thoughts about what that means so you know we saw a lot of senior adults who were lonely who were frustrated, who were neglected. And, you know, especially the Korean ones, because we had that language, you know, I think if we had more, like, greater Spanish proficiency, we would, I think, see this um, more with with those folks as well. But, like, we had customers who would just come for, like, no reason and sort of, like, sit there for a while, drink coffee. Oh, my goodness. Um, Also, like, I was doing some translation work because, you know, there would be, like, you know, letters that they receive that sure. that are in English and they don't understand or it's translated really badly into Korean. Right. Stuff you're not getting compensated for. No, <laughs> that we're doing because, you know... Um, because they're there. Yeah, and you, you think about... And, you know, uh, 
these are like Mexican Korean communities, you know, to name just two, there are many are very traditionally family tribe clan oriented communities and so you like think of other people as extended family members right so when you when you see an elderly woman come in you say hi money like grandmother you don't say oh some lady i don't know right yeah so when she comes in and she's like hey there's this thing i got from my my landlord what does this mean yeah i'm gonna sit there and like work on that with her yeah it's so interesting because it was just a few episodes ago that we highlighted critical tenets of k-town and what we are looking to keep sustainable about k-town or or keep present in this neighborhood and vicinity and here you're telling me that you've got very close experiences with this elderly community that exists in our city so you've certainly revealed something to me during this convo i had no idea that you'd that you'd worked so closely with with some of these for community members in our city. And I love what you said just as well about the sort of way that whether we're talking about this side of the world or another, caring for those who we call elders, that's something we're probably still just getting to refine. In California, one thing I know or have read at least up to this point is that by 2030, up to 25% of the population in this state will be over the age of 65. And so that's one out of four, one out of every four people that you'll see on the bus or the train or sometimes in traffic on the freeway. And it's fascinating to think that this population will continue to grow at the same time that we still have so much more to account for in order to properly care for them. Yeah. I just don't think that we're much like we're not really preparing for and we haven't been preparing for climate change and climate catastrophe. (laughs) We're not really preparing for what's coming, right? I mean, we have all the statistics and data and there are people who are talking about it and concerned, but the kind of change that we need to make um, to have an impact, you know, when that, like, say, 2030 comes, right? We're not doing those things, so it's going to, um, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to look like um, when that day comes. I mean, that day's already here, actually. You know, I'm just hearing all these stories about, um, you know, uh, one of our stories that we featured um, at the beginning, you know, just about senior Korean adults, just as an example, you know, it's not just Korean adults who are ending up homeless, right? Um, because that infrastructure that used to support them in the past is no longer there or whatever. There's like a deterioration that's happening. That's right. So, so I don't know. I, I feel um, kind of dismayed about that. And I just, I think then my, my filial piety that I, that I talked about just kind of kicks in and I'm just like, not my mom and dad, you know? Um, but of course we can't just be so myopic and thinking about our literal moms and dads. We have to be thinking about like the extended family of, of folks to care for. Well, that's what K-Town is okay is. That's what K-Town is. Oaxacan Korean is committed to because I think that yes, we're here to celebrate Mm K-Town. Yes. We're here to uplift the communities in this neighborhood and those beyond in neighborhoods just like it 
in LA and all over. But we're also here to talk about some of the serious challenges that are facing this neighborhood that are not new, that have mm. been well studied and documented, and that it is high time to begin to address seriously and and without interruption or without hesitation. And so I do think that what you're getting to here, especially in terms of the shared struggles, shared challenges, particularly in terms of housing for Central American communities and Korean American communities or Asian American communities in central Los Angeles, that's an issue that is only going to get louder mm -hmm. as the days go on. Yes. So I think beginning those conversations today and affecting some kind of shakeup to the best of our ability through these analyses and through mm -hmm. the support and analyses of others, that's kind of what we got to be doing yeah. given that familial relation that mm -hmm. we feel to these communities. Yeah. We just need to keep our eyes open to the environment around us. You know, these are not matters or people that are hidden. They're walking around in plain sight, but we just don't see because our eyes are trained to focus on other things that feel more our purview. But yeah, these members of our community, these matters, like I was saying, you know, they're there and they're easily within reach. And so, yeah, I, I just think about like the dignity that we need to give everybody who is a part of our community. Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. And just to be sure regarding the medical supply store, we start in about 06, 07, and then about when do you and your parents get to let this go and do other things, retire, so to speak, from that work and move on to the rest of what you have in front of you? Yeah, so that medical store still exists. It's still there. I drove by it the other day, and it still has the signage that I designed. It wow. looks weather-worn. You know, we hometown, hometown medical supplies. Um or in Korean, hometown Urogigi. <laughs> and um, my parents sold it like seven, eight years ago, maybe even before that. Because, you know, my mom, it, it was time for my, my parents to retire. Like my parents were senior adults, serving senior adults. So wow. my dad, like at, you know, um, nine o'clock at night was in a senior adult's home as a senior adult, like on the floor, <laughs> putting hospital beds together and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and good on him that he could do that. But still like, you, you don't want to be thinking that your dad who's like receiving Medicare benefits himself is, um, putting hospital beds together, you know? Um, <laughs> so yeah. Shout out to you. Papa, how do we say pop and Appa. mom? Appa and oma. Shout out to you, Appa and Amma. And I'm so glad that you were there. I'm not going to lie. Um, I wasn't happy to be there most of the time. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think I went through an existential crisis myself, like being with them all the time, having them have access to me all day long, every day, all day. But, you know, that's another story. <laughs> Honestly, that's an L.A. story. And we we just got a new story up on ktownisok.com. Yes. That, that also really harps in on the family aspect of things and how especially like a certain sort of commitment to your family mm -hmm. yields all these stories, yields all these experiences, 
and yields a part of LA that, though maybe not often seen, is very much present and is very much a part of the survival of the city. So, like, yeah, you know, you might not have been at your happiest at that moment, but looking back, you also see that, like, whoa, you now have all of these archives, all of these memories with your folks that are uniquely yours, yeah. that are also going to allow you to see others who are in that today. Yeah, and, you know, going back in time, was Helen feeling like I'm living the dream? I'm living my dream? No. But also my idea of, like, what that means has changed a little bit, you know, over the years. And if I look back, I'm so glad I was there with my parents. Yeah. If anything, I wish I could have done more. Well, and I think it says a lot about, like, what coming to America is and what even becoming an American family is, what maybe hyphenating your culture and adding that signifier to yourselves actually looks like. It's not that you come to America and then everything is simplified for you. It's mm. actually that you come to America and you're going to commit to an idea, to a service in this case, and you will stop at nothing until you can get enough time in to support your family and in turn through that do a little more for yourselves than you may have elsewhere. Certainly that's the idea. And mm -hmm. so I think this is just one example of how actually it took a little bit of everything from all of us, especially the big sisters or nunas out there. So for those of you who really can <laughs> recognize your own stories in Nuna's description of the family shop over at 8th Street in the Westlake slash MacArthur Park area, mm. shout out to you just as well. We see you in this city and we can't wait to get into more dialogue with you. And as we noted, we've got a new story up at ktownisok.com once again about family life and the way that family really pulls us through some of these incredible times for our society. So maybe you can say a little more about what's next at ktownisok.com. Yes, please do check out the, the new interview with Quasi, our friend, artist, photographer. Um, he does so many things and, um, you know, we talked about so many interesting things and it's just unfortunate the way we have to kind of edit things for, um, you know, our readers. Um, not everything could be included, but just, I am just saying all of that to say he's such an interesting, soulful, deep thinking, talented dude, you know, and so please go check out that article. And, you know, we are just, we have the privilege of being connected to so many different people who are stakeholders in this area called Koreatown. And um, we're having great conversations, interviews coming up, you know, on the way. But also, you know, we're coming up on one year yeah. since the leaked recording that kick-started my conversation with you, Jimmy, about Koreatown and what it means to be invisibilized, what it means to empower ourselves to tell our stories. Yeah. And so, you know, we've got stuff um, coming up to to kind of, um, I guess, in a weird way, commemorate that yeah. and, and to see, you know, to look back and to look forward um, with not just the two of us, but other people who have started to kind of link arms with us and come along for the ride. Yeah, and I really want to shout out yourself. I want to shout out my Nuna Helen H. Kim for such a great interview with Quasi and all of the work that it takes to get that out to our community and to make sure that it just reads well enough for their ability to pass it on. 
I also, of course, want to shout out Quasi for highlighting the skaters in Mm K-Town and and actually being a part of what may be called the original skate culture of the early 2Ks through L.A. Yeah, in the 90s, you know, for for him. That's right, actually. And it's so cool because I think that community, especially people of color in that community, they absolutely need to have their voices heard. And we and you just as well, Nuna. I'm so glad to be in this work with you. And I'm excited about, yeah, this upcoming anniversary that we have and that we've got some plans for. Mm-hmm. So you all just try to keep up with us. Make sure that you are subscribed to this show, that you have hit that follow button. And if you can, please also review the show. Give us your five-star rating. Pass it on to a friend and reach out to us. Message us directly or comment on some of our stories if that is what's most convenient for you. Yes. And we will be happy to be in touch. K-Town is okay is just getting started out here. And K-Town is okay. Oh, yes. Now, let me see if I could find the... Okay. Yeah, that's the daddy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I We're love it. We're just going to leave it okay. there for now. <laughs> That's perfect. K-Town is a misnomer. It's called K-Town, but it's all Latinos. And, yes, um, so what's yours? Yeah, that's called K-Town. I see a lot of little short, dark people. Yeah, puro Oaxacan. Puro Oaxacan Koreans. Oaxacan Koreans.